certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Defence today told court Bradley Edwards never intended to kill his rape victim. He planned his attack carefully, but murder was not part of that plan. If he wanted to kill her, she would be dead, Mr Jovich said. Hi everyone, Natalie Bonjolo, Tim Clark and Damien Cripps with you today, day 92 of Claremont in Conversation. Tim, Mr Jovich resumed his third day of closing arguments today and today he was really focusing on the Karakata crime. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he did get to that. He, he touched on that on, on Friday, but really went into it in depth um, today. And uh, that young lady was in court to to hear um, all of that argument right up till lunchtime. And it, it, there were two strands to it, really. There was um, Mr. Jovic stressing that obviously Mr. Edwards had plead guilty to that crime, that it was a very serious crime, obviously, um, and uh, sympathised in, 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 in a lot of ways with the victim, saying that it was no doubt it would have been a dreadful ordeal um, and that her accounts of it, um, uh, various as they were, um, over many, many years, um, were essentially to be believed and you know he, he wasn't casting any doubts on on anything that she'd said um in essence but what he did say and, and the main tenet of the argument was that when you compared that crime to the murders of jane and kira and sarah that there were so many differences and ver- various fundamental differences that his argument was that it shouldn't and couldn't be used that much as propensity evidence to point to the um, offender in the rape, which we know is Mr. Edwards, being inevitably the person or even uh, inferentially the person that committed the crimes that began just, just under a year later when Sarah went missing and then continued over another almost 12 months um, to when Kira went missing and was discovered. So that was that would that, that was the basic premise of what he was saying. But then he went through point by point to highlight some of the, the some of those fundamental differences. He said were there, um, and that um, Justice Hall should really really look closely at. Yeah. So I mean, really, he is challenging any link between that crime and the murders. And he started by uh, raising doubts about the fibres on the shorts of the victim. Yes, that's right. So he, Mr. Jovich sort of warned us, I suppose, a little bit that he's going to go through the fibre evidence in much more detail um, later on in the week. But the first thing he wanted to look at was these fibres on the shorts of, of the Karakata victim. Now, the prosecution say that must be a, a link and an intrinsic link and a, and a vital link between all three women because those fibers came from the same source, i.e., Telstra workwear. They were on all three women, i.e., there is a, is a physical, um, tangible connection between all those crimes. But what Mr. Jovic then began his arguments with were 
a suggestion that given the the night that um, that the young lady who eventually was raped at, in Karakata had had leading up to that crime, i.e. there were four different venues that she'd visited and two different vehicles that she'd travelled in and all the interactions that she'd had at those two or six six places. <laughs> he said that there, was, there could be an argument that those fibres got there coincidentally, i.e. through another transfer event at one of those venues or in one of those cars. Now, Justice Hall was quite quick to, 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 to jump on this point or, or ask Mr. Jovic to stand on this point, and he said he would do in, in due course. But that was the general argument. And so if those fibres had gone on those shorts coincidentally, then that would rule out any particular causal link, in particular the, the, the prosecution argument that um, they inevitably got there via transfer from either Mr. Edwards directly or from his vehicle, which it, it will be very interesting to see how Mr. Jovic does expand and, and yes. work on that argument because I, uh, from my reading of the questions from Justice Hall, he was immediately, well, questioning um, that that line of logic. Yeah, that's right. And what about the um, the vehicle itself? Because Mr. Jovic was also questioning... Um, which vehicle was used during the Karakata attack? Mm, yeah, so we heard evidence in the trial and then uh, submissions on it last week about the, 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 the particular type of vehicle that was used in that crime. Um, the young lady described ostensibly or and on, on over the various um, statements she made a panel van, a white panel van. And then we heard evidence from a security guard um, at Hollywood Hospital later saying that he 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 thought he had seen a a panel van with Telstra markings leaving or driving around that area at about four thirty four forty five that morning. Now, Mr. Jovic um, sort of questioned whether that evidence can be taken totally at face value for several reasons. Well, one of the main ones being. The, the victim in the Karakata crime was hooded um, and so wasn't um, able to particularly describe her surroundings after that. Um, and she also said on various occasions that she kept her eyes closed a lot during the whole ordeal because she was so frightened. And so Mr. Jovic pointed that out and said, well, so um, what can we really take from her remembrance of this attack because of what she said in, in terms of what she could actually see. Mm. But Justice Hall then raised the point, well, does it is it is it absolutely vital to know absolutely what type of vehicle it was? Because what she does describe is is a vehicle with, with space in it that was light coloured and she consistently said this. Whereas comparing Mr Edwards's own personal car at that time, which was a something called a Ford LTT station wagon, that was that was um, that was nothing like anything she described, and so Justice Hall pointed out, well, so what other car could it be, or what other vehicle could it be, other than a a pool vehicle or a uh, a Telstra vehicle that Mr Edwards had access to? Jovic said, well, we can't really argue against that, Your Honour, because we we certainly can't say it was his his own car, and then. Justice Hall took that one stage further and said, well, that wouldn't that then beg the, the argument, well, if she's inevitably in a Telstra, some, some sort of Telstra vehicle, 
And isn't it inevitable that that is where, um, or it's certainly highly likely where those fibres have come from, i.e. being transferred from a vehicle? And take that one step further, isn't that what the prosecutors say then happened to Jane and Kira? So that is something I, from my reading of it, Mr. Jovic is going to have to work quite hard at when he gets to that fibre evidence because there were several concessions he had to make, particularly the make and where the vehicle had come from. And then um, it, it, it seemed to me quite a logical step for Justice Hall to take in his reasoning. And Mr. Jovic says, yes, I will turn to that reasoning and, and, and uh, address it in due course. Yeah, Damien, I might be wrong here, but I I wonder if this may be a source of frustration or maybe confusion for people because Mr Edwards has pleaded guilty to the rape, yet the details of the car used haven't been proven in evidence. And I just wonder if some people are thinking, well, you know, why can't we ask him that question because he's right there? Well, he's chosen not to give evidence. Yeah. (laughs) That's That's about as simple as it gets now, I think. He's chosen not not to give evidence, um, and this is a trial in relation to the, um, the, the the three allegations he's currently facing. So, I, but I certainly understand what you mean. Yeah, I know we can't just ask him. I'm just thinking that people are, are probably thinking to themselves, okay, well, we're having a, a discussion about this evidence that doesn't conclude what the car is that's used. And um, the the accused has admitted this part of the, or this crime, so therefore, you know, wouldn't it be good if during maybe the police interview these details had been brought to light? Well, yeah, absolutely. But as everybody in every line of work would understand, um, hindsight would be a fantastic thing to have at the time of doing something, and it just might be the case that you know the the, the, the officers that would have arrested him at the time would have had so many things they were trying to deal with that, oh, from my point of view, it's understandable that they can't foresee every problem that's going to arise in a trial that goes for, what are we at, 96 days? <laughs> 92, nearly. Not, yeah. not 92 days. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's foreseeable. And, and, and as the case is with every trial, some things, you know, if you, look at, if you look at the fact that we can't ask the accused person about this as something that falls in his favour, well, the, the way to look at that is that in every trial, there are some things that fall in favour of one party and there are some mm-hmm. things that fall in favour of the other party. And that's not by design. That's just some, sometimes the way things go. So unfortunately, in this case, we're in a position where the accused man um, is not in a position or is not you know, available to no. have that question asked of him. Yeah. Tim, Mr Jovic went on to really try and show why the rape and the murders are fundamentally different. Yes, he did that. And that was that was really at the heart of, of um, a, the major part of his um, his arguments today. And the major part of that argument was a pretty obvious one um, in that that um, victim in the Karakata crime, as horrific as her ordeal was, um, she was not killed. She was not murdered at the end of that ordeal uh, was left in a bush in another bush um, but um, was was alive and that is that was where Miss Barbara Gallo went or was going with with her contention last week that 
that those actions, i.e., in coming back and then and, and and depositing this this young woman in these bushes when Mr. Edwards thought she might have been unconscious or she was certainly um, acting like she was unconscious, was a preparation for then later coming back and killing her. But that was thwarted by the fact that the young lady managed to escape. And the um, the other evidence that went to that was this this sighting of this of this van, this car by the, the security guard, which was suggested by Miss Barbara Gallo that that could have been Mr. Edwards returning um, to um, what was described today as the job off. Now, obviously, Mr. Jovic pointed to that and said, "Well, that is a fundamental difference, and there is there is no um, overt suggestion um, in anything." Done in, in other than you no, know, some some of the listeners might find this a bit outrageous, but it was Mr. Yovich's argument, not mine, that apart from the the actions in 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 what he'd done, there was no other overt violence, if you like. There was no weapon involved, as far as we we can tell from what the young lady was uh, had told police. There was no um, other sort of striking or punching or anything of, of, of that kind so uh, uh, um, what what did happen and there was no other overt violent act um, and then there was other um, factors to, to, to the way that the the, um, the attack was structured if you want to put it that way um, and perpetrated that um, didn't align with what had allegedly or um, or has been suggested happened to Sarah and Kira and Jane. Mm. So one of those was the screams. Now we know that the Karakata victim was gagged um, for quite a long portion of her attack, whereas um, the evidence suggested by the prosecution is that Jane and Sarah both screamed um, in the moments... Um, before they were either killed or, or certainly incapacitated. There was the fact that this was a, so, a so-called blitz attack. So the, the young lady was attacked from behind, incapacitated, quickly um, uh, you know, hooded and then take, put into a, a, a car and then driven around. Whereas in the cases of um, Jane, we think, and Kira, we, we, on, the, on the basis of eyewitness accounts, very strongly suggested by the prosecution they were lured into this car or, or, or somehow persuaded to get into this car rather than um, you know sort of attacked and then bundled into this car there was the fact that there was no overt direct evidence from on either Jane or Kira that they were sexually assaulted mm-hmm. even though that Jane was was found naked and that evidence simply isn't there so and he, Mr. Jovic said that these are that these are not just you know odd little quirks. These are fundamental differences between these attacks, which he say says um, should mean that the, the the propensity evidence, as as it's as it's framed by the prosecution, um, shouldn't be um, taken at, 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 even at face value. It shouldn't be taken at all. By Justice Hall. Did Justice Hall interrupt much with questions during this portion? Yes, a, a, a little bit. But th- this was this was a, a, a section that Mr. Jovic was allowed 
um, in 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 the most part to develop as a whole, if you like. I mean, there were there were um, sort of a, a couple of questions here and there, just to just to a bit like last week with Miss Barber Gallo, that he, he wanted to get very clear in his mind, you know, the absolute tenet of of what Mr. Jovich was saying. But Damien, obviously, there's no disputing that Mr. Edwards is a sexually motivated attacker, um, but his intention to kill or or not intention to kill the teenage victim, it, it's quite important in this in this point, isn't it? I think that I, what I always what what passes through my mind is I feel for any judge um, or magistrate or anyone in that position of considering whether propensity evidence can be admitted, and if the propensity evidence is admitted, what work it is that you propose that that propensity evidence will do. Um, it's oh, I find it a, a really challenging um, subject. It's 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 essentially saying, you know, let's let some extremely circumstantial evidence from a prior um, or a subsequent incident in to assist the person who's making a decision make that decision, and it's but let's not let it in if it's too prejudicial. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's a, a terribly difficult proposition, I think, for anyone. And I mean, I'm sure um, judges and and People who have been doing it for a long time will argue, would argue with me and say it's not terribly difficult. But I'm, I'm only speak, speaking from a personal um, point of view. If, if whenever I consider it, I always think that it would be terribly difficult to, to, to work out whether you were going to let it in or not let it in. And in this case, from what Tim's saying, it sounds like um, the defence uh, asking, understandably, that, that that it not be allowed to to be in. Um, but as in relation to what you've just asked, Nat, it, it is extremely important because I guess it's suggesting that we do... You are looking at an accused person who's not convicted yet of these three offences that has a propensity to be, as you put it, sexually motivated. But is that the question, I think, was really well put by the defence, if I understood what Tim had said, that realistically, in relation to the three offences that are currently being considered... There's no evidence of any um, sexual offending. So realistically, on that basis, the propensity evidence, just from where I'm standing, seems to be something that can't go in. But th there would be an argument about th th the issues even before that, the argument about, um, well, he's motivated to pursue young women. He's motivated to be out late at night. There's a, there's a number of different things that the convictions might assist the trier of fact in in dealing with but not only dealing with they've, they've got to deal with it in a, in in a way that's worded quite strangely as well it's in is in that it helps them not exclude that as an activity that the person might do i'm not sure that i've worded that very well but that's essentially what we're asking propensity evidence to do is to say to someone that you know if you were previously convicted of doing something then you then the jury or the trier of fact could be satisfied that that's not something that you would not do. It's, it's, it's it, I mean, in my view, it's a difficult proposition and I always feel for the people who are having to deal with making decisions about it going in. Just carrying on from that, um, I guess the, you know, the arguments here are poles apart and I think now we can sort of look and see why maybe Mr Jovic needs such a long time for these closing submissions. I think 
you know, I was feeling for the prosecution last week, Matt, and we're feeling for the defence this week. It's a really hard job. I mean, you know, the, to, to consider that we start with nothing. I mean, we start with, obviously, you start with a blank slate when the trial starts, and then both parties build up this position that they're going to get to the end and try to argue to succeed. It's Yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot... Um, it doesn't seem like... You know, on the face of it, that's hard. But when you're playing out like we are at the moment through the um, through the quantum of material that they've got to close on, yeah, it's a terribly difficult, um, terribly difficult thing to go through logically. And and that's why you know the best lawyers in the world are the ones that always end up running these cases. Yeah, and Tim, a very difficult day, of course, for the victim today as well. I expect very, very. Um, I saw her exiting the court at lunchtime. She looked, um, oh, as, you, as you'd imagine, um, she would look because not only are you having to relive probably the worst moment of your life again, um, you're actually having your account of it not so much uh, doubted, but certainly scrutinised mm. and, and, and questioned. Um, uh, and uh, she said actually in one of the statements, that she did think she was going yes. to die. Um, and and now Mr. Jovic is categorically saying on behalf of my client that was not his intention. So, you know, yeah, I, it, it would have been a, a hugely um, hard day to have all that again brought up. But as we've said so many times, it is necessary. It's hard. It's, um, But it is necessary for um, Mr. Jovic to put these... Um, uh, arguments and, and thoughts in, in front of Justice Hall um, so he can um, consider them when, when, the, when the time comes. That's right. And Mr Jovic also honed in on the Telstra Living Witnesses today um, and in a way he was kind of saying that um, their testimonies in a way diminish the state's case. Yeah, so that was that was his argument. So, um, as our listeners will remember, the Telstra Living Witness Project was something that the police um, embarked on to with a with a view to finding potentially other victims or other women that had come into contact with anyone that might um, uh, be similar um, to um, a, a you know a, a prowling predator in Claremont in the in the mid nineties, and uh, they found several of these accounts, and at least four of these accounts took um, in a detail that included a Telstra vehicle, and those are the ones that um, Ms. Barbara Gallo relied on and really honed in on last week um, to say we say that this proves that um, uh, that not only a person, but we say that that person was Mr. Edwards was out and about in Claremont um, uh, in exactly this time frame doing this to other women or trying to trying to lure other women into his, his car. Mr. Jovic um, really went hard um, on that um, interpretation today and said, not only does this not come close to identifying this person as Mr. Edwards, but we say potentially identifies another person in a Telstra car that could have been doing uh, these predatory things um, in exactly the same time frame as, as these crimes were being committed. Um, and the way he did this was to, again, point out inconsistencies between the accounts and uh, in particular pointed out a, a, an identity sketch that was, that, was, um, that was put together 
by the first of these Telstra living witnesses, a lady called Julianne Johnston. Um, and, and her account was so important and potentially so central is because um, she she could precisely date this this encounter that she had as uh, January the 28th, 1996, which would put it exactly almost 24 hours after Sarah Spears went missing. Mm. Now, it's very hard to describe a photo fit via a podcast, so um, <laughs> I hope that some listeners might be interested enough to, to go online and have a look because that identity kit is up there. Um, when we first saw it in court, some of us were, you know, way back in, in December last year, some of us were um, convinced it didn't look like Mr. Edwardson, and some said, well, yeah, you know, it, it could be him. And it could be him, but it also could be anyone. Um, yes. And Mr. Yovich's point today was, look, as, as the closest it could come is that it's a Caucasian male under 40, which is what Mr. Edwards was. But he said in other details, the, 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 the long sort of hair at the back, the receding hairline at the front, um, it, it just it just didn't line up. And and so Mr. Yovich said, not only does that, you know, positively go against it being Mr. Edwards, but then it could actually suggest that it was there was there was someone else out there, um, you know, uh, trying to accost and lure, lure women um, in, a, in a car that might well have belonged to Telstra. That's right. And, Damien, it's interesting because Mr Edwards hasn't been identified by these witnesses. There is no CCTV footage placing him in the area. And I, I wonder if the prosecution would have had to ponder whether to include these living witnesses or not. I think that it would have been something that they thought about for a long, long time. Um, I think for everyone that's been uh, following along with this trial, all of us that are involved in it, all of us that have followed along, we might be a bit caught up in the yeah, the, the, the size of this trial and, 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 it, and the impact of this trial that's having on the state and, and everyone um, in the state. But the point that you just made then, that's extremely important, that... There's no, there's no identification. There's no CCTV footage. There's, I mean, look, certainly appreciate. There's a lot of other evidence. Um, it puts us in the position we're in, where we're having a trial, and there's um, good reason behind that. But it doesn't. You don't get past the fact that there's. I mean, on one of the cases, there's not even a body. I mean, I'd say that mm. with, obviously with the greatest of respect. It's. I just. I felt feel with the prosecution trying to work out how they were going to put their case together, because um, at, at the very least, at least the defence got to see the prosecution case before they commenced their case, if you could put it that way. Yes. But we, as we come back to every single time, I feel like every time I'm on the podcast, what about the man at the head of the ship, the justice that has got to make the decision? So he, not just the prosecution who have got to ponder whether they're going to run it, but now Justice Hall is about to, at some point in the not-too-distant future, commence pondering what impact it has on his decision that they did include it. Yeah, that's right. And, Tim, even today, Mr Jovic had a go about the Telstra logos uh, potentially covering up the car. Yeah, so this was an argument that uh, that was made by Ms Barbara Gallo. She said, um, on one hand, if the Telstra logos were um, visible on the cars, then that could have... Um, uh, see, made the driver of the car seem a bit more trustworthy, um, and so that might have been a reason that the, uh, the 
any young lady, not just not just Jane or Kira or Sarah, might have got into the car. But then on the other hand, she also said at one point that those um, logos might have been covered up with some sort of other decal. Um, and Mr. Jovic obviously um, jumped on that and said, well, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Um, I, either he was using the, the, the Telstra logo, not necessarily Mr. Edwards or this person that was driving around Claremont, um, was using it to, um, you know, ensnare young women by sort of ensuring that safe. they were all right, yeah. or um, he wasn't. Um, so yeah, again, just you know, just just another, just another little, you know, knock on a block of the of the the Jenga tower, if you want. Just just trying to just trying to make things, you know, wobble a little bit um, more um, uh, than uh, than otherwise we might have thought um, when Miss Barbara Gallo was, was doing her stuff last week. Yeah, that's right. And Defence obviously has plenty more to come because Mr Jovic indicated he still has a way to go before he'll finish his closing submissions. Yeah, indeed, Nat. Um, at least Wednesday, we think now. That's what he said today. Um, he's got plenty more to go through. Obviously, the fibres, that will take a long time. Um, and then he, he's going to sort of pick through the, the actual murders themselves and, and the, the, the direct evidence from there. Um, and presumably point out some inconsistencies there. Um, yeah, so yeah, the, he's he's got a he's got a fair way to uh, he's got a fair way to travel yet, um, as have we. Damien, do you think Ms. Barbagallo would have anticipated uh, just how detailed um, Mr. Jovic's closing submissions would be in terms of picking, you know, holes in the prosecution case? A hundred percent. I would have thought that she would have almost banked on it. Um, I, I don't know uh, for, for certain, but I'm fairly sure that um, both the prosecutor and the defence lawyers all know them, know each other to some extent, mm. and they would know each other professionally. To, so she, I, I would have thought that she would have anticipated it to some extent. Yeah, right. You could tell, and you can tell that Nat, by the, the, the amount of detail that she went into, and um, yes, and, and how we discussed last week that she was already sort of anticipating some of the things that Mr. Jovic was going to say. And getting her, um, you know, get, getting getting her punches in first, as it were. So, um, but you know, he's this, definitely this, going to take more time with closing well, than she has, though. This this is his. Yeah, I think he is, and, the, and this is his. You know, this this is his his big moment, I suppose. And um, I mean, he, you know, he is he is fighting very hard um, on on the behalf of his client, who who is facing you know the most serious charges you could possibly imagine. Absolutely. Well, thank you both very much for your time today and thank you for being with us for week 24. It's been quite a journey, but we are close to the finish. Join us tomorrow. That's Nat, Tim and Alison for day 93 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.